morning, church family. Good to be with you today as we continue our study in 1 Thessalonians, and today continuing on in chapter 2. Some years ago, I was meeting regularly with a young man, mentoring him in his first days, his first years of ministry, a young missionary uh, man. He was a young guy, had been married for just a few years, and had a couple of small children. And I recalled as we began our time together, the, the meetings were very enjoyable, good conversations. And I, but I didn't feel like we were really making any great progress. Even though I was enjoying our, our conversations, enjoying our talks, I, and I certainly enjoyed him as a person, but I didn't see a whole lot of fruit coming out of those, those conversations. The, the times together, as, as, as nice as they were, didn't seem to really be producing anything. Until one day, as I was sitting in prayer for him, and I felt prompted by the Spirit to ask him a particular question. And so when we met again in the midst of our conversation, I, I paused and I looked at him, and, and I asked the question that I felt that the Spirit had given me and, and prompted me to ask him. It was interesting when I asked that question, suddenly his, his face visibly changed. The whole mood of the conversation changed. In fact, he just sat in, in my study there, and he looked out the window for several minutes. And I let him just look. I could tell he was thinking and, and processing something. And then he began to speak. And in that moment, everything changed. He turned a corner in not only in that conversation, but in every meeting after that. It was interesting that day. I, I watched him come into my study as one person and as he left, I thought, there is a very different person walking out. I have never seen such a dramatic change come over somebody in a single moment. A few weeks later, his wife came up to me at the end of church one Sunday. And she just looked at me and said, what have you done to my husband? What happened to him? He is a completely different man. He's a, different, he's a different father. He's a different husband. He's so different. What happened? And I had to say, well, I didn't do anything. He was simply open to the Spirit in a whole new way, and it completely transformed his life. Not only his ministry, but his fathering, his, his, his marriage, everything was different. He he was so obviously transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was transformed by the gospel. I think of that young man as I read these words that Paul writes here to the Thessalonians in our passage today. He, he's been talking about his ministry among them and, and recounting what that ministry looked like and these are really helpful reminders for us in our own ministry. 
And over the years, these have been passages that I have turned to many, many times as, as I've considered what it means to be a pastor myself. And as I have trained other young pastors, these are the kinds of passages I look at. But now as, as we are in chapter 2, beginning today at verse 13, we see a transition in this section of the, of the letter as he describes the response of the Thessalonians to this ministry. It's a, it's a beautiful response, as, as my young missionary friend John, as they, they demonstrate the power of the gospel to transform the, the hearts of men and women. I, I think the passage is, is so well summed up in three words that emerge from this passage that, that capture Paul's message. And they also, I think, provide some very timely wisdom for us today. Beginning in, in verse 13, Paul writes these words, we thank God constantly for this. And that, that's our first word. It's, it's that word of thanksgiving. We, we thank God constantly. This theme of, of thanksgiving is a, is a recurring theme all throughout this letter. And Paul first mentions it in, in chapter 1, verse 2. Again, he says, we give thanks to God always or constantly, as he says in, in later on in chapter 2. We give God thanks constantly for all of you. And then he notes the things specifically that he, that he gives thanks for, and, 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 and he, he describes those things in, in the opening of this letter. And we'll see it again as we, as we continue on in our study in this letter. In, in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? And you can begin to you can begin to hear this, this sense of, I, I can't find the right words to thank God for you. What, what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? So not only thanksgiving, but this, this sense of joy that wells up in him out of that thanksgiving. He, he is so overflowing with gratitude for these people that it wells up in this, this inability to express the fullness of it to God, as well as this overflowing joy that comes out of it. But as we have also seen again and again in this letter, and we'll continue to see in our study in this letter, that the circumstances of the Thessalonians were not easy, and Paul's circumstances were certainly not easy. And so these, these words of thanksgiving come out of deep, deep hardship and suffering and, and persecution. But even in the midst of the hardship that he's experiencing, Paul chooses to hold firmly to this, this attitude of thanksgiving rather than living under the circumstances of the time. I really don't think that we can under, underestimate or understate 
the, the power of a thankful heart. Especially when we are facing such difficult times, one thing that I have observed over the years in my own ministry is that you cannot be thankful and covetous at the same time. You can't be thankful and discontent at the same time. Discontentedness will not only rob us of our, our joy, but it leads us down a, a poisoned path of bitterness. In fact, Paul illustrates that very, very powerfully in the first chapter of his letter to the Romans. He describes this, this downward spiral of depravity in, in verses 18 through 32 as he recounts this progression of not only of not honoring God, of exchanging the, the truth of God for a lie. And then there, there is this chilling phrase that, that comes up a few times, God gave them up to a debased mind. He gave them up to the lusts of the flesh. Powerful passage. But where does it all start? Where does that begin in Romans 1, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And where did it lead? That lack of giving God thanks. That was the beginning of this downward spiral. It led to foolish hearts and darkened minds. I would suggest that gratitude keeps us sane because gratitude keeps our hearts open to God and our minds enlightened to the truth of God. Gratitude aligns our heart and our spirit with God's heart and God's spirit. Even in these difficult times in which we're living, I want to encourage you each day to look for something for which you can be thankful. This is the example that we have here in the Apostle Paul, even in the midst of trials and persecution and hardship and imprisonment. He gives thanks. But you know what else I observe here? I think something very important, Paul tells them. He speaks the words. He doesn't just think thankful thoughts. He says them. I've been reminded over the years many, many times about the power of a word of encouragement or a word of thanks. In fact, Paul is very specific in this passage about what he is thankful for and I want to encourage you to voice your gratitude to other people. It won't make them proud. It will help them to feel loved. It will encourage them. It will build them up. And that's our first word, thankfulness. But what is Paul thankful for? He goes on to tell the Thessalonians exactly what he is thankful for. And here in verses 13 and 14, 
he says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. This is our, our second word, is the word transformation. He, he's grateful for this, this work of transformation that he sees going on in them. And how do we see that? Well, first of all, we see that they received the word of God, not as a human message, but, but as a divine message. And indeed, apart from the word of God, and without the empowering and illuminating work of the Spirit, we have no message to give. I have nothing to preach apart from this word of God. As Leon Morris says, to preach interesting little moral essays can never prove an adequate substitute for the word that comes from God. And they not only received it, but they accepted it for what it truly was, a message from not from Paul, but a message from God himself. And notice how Paul writes in this passage something I think very subtle, but very, very powerful, that his work, Paul's part of the work in these verses, is written in the passive voice, while while God's work is in the active voice. And Paul is, Paul is underscoring this idea that I was just the vehicle, but, but God is the one who is really doing the work among you. And that's how transformation always happens. It is God who is at work within us to will and to do his good pleasure. It is God who empowers the teacher to teach and who enlivens the word that we are reading, who enables the, the listener to receive that word and, and who brings about the change of, of spiritual transformation. The action of people in any part of that process is really simply an attentiveness to the movement of God attentiveness to the voice of God and receptivity to the message of God. God is the one who is at work in every part of the process. We are simply open, attentive, and receptive to that work. And any work of transformation in the Thessalonians, and in you and in me as well, is a work solely by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us, bringing that word to life and, and enabling us to receive it. And so Paul says, yes, you heard the word through us, but it was God's word and it was God's power and it was God's spirit at work in you. And you opened your hearts and you, and you received that in a way that he has, he has transformed you from the inside out. 
Well, how do we know that work of transformation has happened? Well, we see that in verse 14. He says, for you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. In short, you became imitators of Jesus. The life of Jesus has has become evident in you and it has transformed you. And that leads us to our third word in this passage. And it's the word perseverance. Again, Paul describes the, the persecution and the suffering, not only of the Thessalonians, but but he reminds them that this has been a part of the history of God's people for centuries. He, he connects their story with the much broader story of the church of Jesus Christ. They were suffering the same things among their countrymen and their brothers and sisters were, were experiencing in Judea. The same thing that, that Jesus suffered. And the same thing that the prophets suffered. So Paul is reminding them suffering is nothing new. It is a part of life in a fallen and and broken world. And Jesus himself reminds us that in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so So Paul connects their suffering with the universal suffering of Jesus's church. Their story is a part of a much larger story. Suffering can be so isolating and and so alienating, can't it? Beyond the the social distancing that, that we're experiencing these days to emotional distancing and relational distancing and and even spiritual distancing. But, but Paul reminds them, you're not alone in your difficulties. Your experience is not unique. But I don't think the emphasis in this part of the passage is really on the suffering. The, the emphasis is on the way they suffered. Let's go back to that word, imitated. In their suffering, they imitated Jesus and the others who have suffered in his name. They they persevered in their faith. They stood firm. They they held to the name of Jesus as their hope. The Thessalonians and and the persecuted church scattered around the world today remind us that the only message worth living for is a message worth dying for. And only a message worth dying for is a message worth sharing with other people. But in a strange sort of way, Paul ends this section, I think, with a word of hope. He reminds us that in the end, God always has the final word. He he comes to the defense of his children, and he judges those who oppose them and Yes, the suffering and the persecution are very real, but in the end, all will face the judgment of God. And this is a theme that that Paul will develop much more as we go on through this this letter, as he talks about the coming of the Lord and, and the day of the Lord. 
This is the ultimate word of hope that we all cling to. There's a day when the fullness of God's kingdom will come, when all suffering and all pain will be ended and we will live fully in the light of God's truth. In the years 249 to 270, a horrible plague spread across the Roman Empire and thousands of people lost their lives, similar to what we see today. And Cyprian wrote a pastoral piece which he titled On Mortality as a way of encouraging these believers who were living under such challenging conditions, not not only the the experience of, of harshness and persecution, but on top of that, now they they face the added suffering of a of a horrible pandemic, much as we're experiencing today. And Cyprian's final word to them was to look ahead, to look to the hope of Jesus's coming. And he writes these words of perspective, these words of comfort to these people. He says, what pleasures there are in the, in the heavenly kingdom without fear of death and with an eternity of life, the highest possible and everlasting happiness. There, the glorious choir of apostles, there, the throng of exultant prophets, there, the innumerable multitude of martyrs wearing crowns on account of the glory and victory of their struggle and passion, triumphant virgins who have subdued the flesh and body by the strength of their continency, the merciful enjoying their reward who have performed works of justice by giving food and alms to the poor, who in observing the precepts of the Lord have transferred their earthly patrimony to the treasuries of heaven. And this really is our ultimate picture of our transformation, this, this glimpse of heaven and our ultimate hope in Jesus. And that hope transforms the way we live today. We live today as God's kingdom people, transformed by his word, empowered by his spirit, and looking constantly to the coming of Jesus, who is our only hope in this life and throughout eternity. I love the way John ends the book of Revelation. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maybe today will be the day of his coming. Encourage one another with those words. Look to the coming of Jesus in these difficult times. Scripture teaches that again and again and again. We don't look down and we don't look around us. We look up for the coming of Jesus. May God bless you this day and bless us this week.